Everybody I've ever met wants to live a life of freedom. You talk to anybody who has a a great struggle with addiction, whatever that may be, and they'll tell you, I want to be free. We wrestle with being in bondage to fear and anxiety. We, We wrestle with shame and guilt. There are all kinds of things in our lives that we would love to be free from. And what's so fascinating to me is that when I read the scriptures, what I find is that as much as we want to be free, God wants us to be free even more than we do. It was God's intent from the very beginning of creation. He created the world and he created all of the creatures in the world for freedom. What the, what the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew word shalom. That idea of, of peace, that idea of everything being in perfect balance, that idea of, of freedom and joy and love and grace and all, the, all of those things that we imagine we would love for life to be, that's how God created us. It's our sin that has thrown a wrench in that. It's our sin that leads to bondage. It's our sin that leads to fear and anxiety and shame and guilt and all of these things. It's us that has created the problem. And God knows that there's no way in the world any of us, even on our best days, could solve that problem. And so Jesus comes. And Jesus comes to be the Redeemer. The one who sets us free. The one who brings shalom into our lives and into our world. What continues to fascinate me is how Jesus does that. We just sang this song about our champion. And one of the lines in that song is, you fight for us. If I were to design this whole plan of, of freedom and shalom, there'd be a lot of power. There'd be a lot of artillery. There'd be, a, there'd be a lot of, there'd be a lot, it would be all about might and strength and crushing. But when Jesus comes, it's a cross. That's the way of salvation. The way of life, the way of shalom. It's a cross. It's not Jesus grasping all of his godness and using that It is instead emptying himself. Philippians chapter 2, the great hymn of the church that Paul shares with the church there and with us, that Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. He didn't use it for his own advantage. He gave himself up. He released all of his rights. For what? To become a servant. And even to go to death. And that's the way in which God has has planned for redeeming creation. You, me, all people. And that's at the heart of the scene that we read about this morning. Jesus has now come to the Garden of Gethsemane. The hour is upon him. He knows it's drawing closer. 
And there's one final moment of preparing himself for what lies ahead. We all know how important preparation is. And for Jesus, I think the garden is really the final battle. Everything else after the garden just sort of flows. It's right here. Jesus in the garden. He brings along his disciples with him. They have no clue what's going to happen. They have no idea what's going on. They have no idea the seriousness of it. And you can tell that because when he says to them, watch, stay alert, stay awake, they fall asleep. I mean, I suspect you've been in situations like I have where you're trying your best to keep your eyes open and you just can't. You know, the, you're sitting in that, that, that class that you just can't quite engage. It's right after lunch. You know, it's, one of, it's 8 o'clock in the morning and you just can't keep your eyes open. I was going to say you're sitting in church, but I know that's never a problem for us, so I don't have to say that. Full disclosure, that's always a problem for me. Uh, you, know, you, you have those moments. And, and how do you combat that? You do everything you can. Sometimes you just can't help it. You're just tired. It, it's, you know, for them, it's late. I, I'm, I, am, I am going to cut them a lot of slack. Because number one, it's late. They don't really know what's happening. They're confused. They're trying to figure all this out. Everything's coming at them at once. They just don't quite get it. They eventually get it. And I suspect there are times where they say, I wish we could go back to the garden again. We do that very differently. Sometimes it's just hard to stay alert. I know there are times when our prayer vigils, when I have like a three o'clock in the morning prayer time. And I know myself, you know, I've been, I've gone to bed for a little bit. I get up, I come down here. I guarantee you that what I'm not going to do is sit down. Because if I sit down, Somebody's going to be knocking on the door and probably waking me up. So I walk, I pace, I sing, I do whatever I can. I, 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 you know, I, I pray while I'm pacing because I know I want this to be a, a divine moment. But if, so I, I do what I can to stay awake. And Jesus is trying to prompt them to that, but they just can't. You would think they might be on alert because he just warned Peter, look, the... Satan's trying to get you. You're going to fall. All of you are going to be scattered. But they just can't quite get it. And sometimes we don't get it either. When I think about Jesus' response to the disciples, he goes away and he prays and he comes back and they're sleeping. The the feeling that I get is that he's not angry with them. I think he's disappointed with them. And I think it's not just he's disappointed because of what it's doing to them. I think he's disappointed because of what it's doing to him. I think he's hoping these guys are going to be there to support him on this treacherous journey he's taking. We, if we saw in the Last Supper the divinity of Jesus rising to the surface in the garden, we see the humanity of Jesus rising to the surface. This is a real thing for him. This is a real battle for him. He is as human as you and I are. And he is struggling in prayer. And in those, you know, those moments that are so difficult. One of the ways in which God helps us is by bringing people into our lives who will love us, support us, care for us, uphold us. And I think Jesus is looking for that from the disciples and he doesn't get it. 
Not just once, not just twice, but three times. And he's disappointed. We all know the feelings of being disappointed by people. People making promises that they don't keep. People struggling with to, uh, to, to help us walk through things and abandoning us. And, and we sometimes feel so alone in our journey, whatever that journey may look like. And what we want to do, I suspect, is to give up. Well, if nobody's going to help me, I, I can't do this. And we just walk away. I think the evil one was hoping that's what Jesus does in the garden. It's one more way in which he's trying to keep Jesus from accomplishing the purposes for which he's come. But whether his disciples support him or not, whether people support us or not, the call of the gospel doesn't change. The call to unite our will with the Father's will doesn't change. It just makes the struggle a bit more difficult. It's one of the ways in which we can be the church for each other is to support each other and care for each other through our journeys. To be alert to each other's needs. To pray for each other. To ask questions of each other. To think about each other. It's vital to the church being the church. And it's walking through the difficult journeys that we face. It is intriguing to me when you look at the, the sort of the spotlight that comes down on Jesus praying. It's one of the things that makes me believe, one of the many things that makes me believe in the authority of the scriptures. Because if I were writing a gospel out of my own mind, the last thing I would do is to make the hero of the story look so susceptible. To make the hero of the story look so vulnerable, so real, so human. And Jesus is. He comes and he says, Father, if there's any other way to accomplish our purposes, can we do that? And he doesn't pray that prayer once or twice, but three times he comes back and keeps praying that prayer. That prayer of vulnerability, that prayer of honesty and openness with the Father. I, I suspect there's a little something in us that, that feels a bit uncomfortable with Jesus praying like this. It's almost too honest for us. I mean, sometimes people share things with us and we're like, you know, I really didn't need to know all that. I would rather have not known all of that. Sometimes, I mean, when I read the scriptures, I think, man, we want Jesus to be the hero of the story. And the hero of the story shouldn't have this kind of vulnerability and weakness. But he does, because he's human, just like you and me, because we have that kind of vulnerability and weakness. And I don't understand, I don't, wouldn't even begin to claim to understand everything that's going on as Jesus prays here in the garden. But it's real. And it's honest. I wonder sometimes if the reason we struggle with the prayer that Jesus prays here in the garden is because we struggle with, with a, a, a utopian view of relationships. I think sometimes we think relationships shouldn't be hard. 
Relationships shouldn't take work. Relationships should just be something that happened. We just feel great for each other all the time. And, and we never have any problems. We never have to work out things. But that wouldn't be a human relationship. And Jesus is exhibiting human relationship. His relationship with his father is real. I think sometimes we have this sort of, we put it into the entertainment industry, sort of a sitcom mindset about relationships. You know what I mean. You watch a sitcom and, they, you know, there's some big problem evolves and comes up and everybody's hurt and yelling at each other and there's pain, there's struggle, and it's never going to get solved. And amazingly enough, within 10 minutes, everybody's happy and everything's fine. And we, we are bombarded with that message. We're bombarded with that message. We're bombarded with that idea over and over again that if relationships are hard, then they're not right. If relationships take work, something's wrong with them. And we think, how come my problems within relationships don't, take, don't get solved in 10 minutes? And the next week when you come back to the sitcom, it's as if that last week's problems never even happened. There's never any residual pain. There's never any residual hurt. It's just everybody's okay. It's all fine. And something in us kind of believes that's the way it ought to be, but it's not. If you want to go back to the entertainment medium, it'd be more like the, maybe the nighttime dramas that we see or something like Downton Abbey or something where you have one week problems arise and there are struggles and there people are hurt and there's difficulties and there's pain. And the next week when you come back, it's all still there. And they're working through it and it takes a long, long time to work to it, through it because that's life. And relationships are hard. And relationships take work. But they're worth it. Because they're so important to us. And that's the, that's the place where we experience love in the, in, its, in the greatest depths of our being. And here we see Jesus wrestling with his Father's will, wrestling for, for what he ought to do. But he, but he keeps wrestling. And eventually he says, Father, here, here's my honest prayer. I'm laying myself out for you. Yet... It's not about me. It's about you. And nobody forces Jesus to do this. It's a willing choice Jesus makes to unite his will with the Father. And here's the thing. Jesus doesn't unite his will with the Father for the first time in the garden. Because this plan has been something, was something that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit designed Revelation says, from the foundation of the world. And Jesus walks into this fully engaged in what he's going to do. And now, as he is on the cusp of doing it, one more time, there is the need for an affirmation because of what he's going to face. Because the real issue, the real pain of the cross, I think, as, as painful as the physical pain of the cross is, the, the cross is what Jesus experiences spiritually. For the first time in his existence, Jesus is going to experience shame and guilt and remorse as the sins of the world are laid upon him. 
He doesn't commit the sins, but he takes all of the sins. As he kneels in the garden, I suspect there is a recognition as much as possible about what he's about to face that eventually is going to lead him to say, Father, why have you forsaken me? And it's not just about the relationship that Jesus has with the Father. It's about the shalom of all of creation. It's at stake here. It's you and me that's at stake here. It's our redemption. It's our well-being. It's our lives that are at stake as Jesus kneels in the garden. And here's the interesting thing about that. Not only is the, is the shalom of all creation at stake. When Jesus is praying, it's at stake in you and me as well. Sometimes it's hard to see that. Because we, are, we get focused, and we should, that there's one cross, one Savior, one Messiah, one Redeemer. There is only one, and it's Jesus. There is only one Savior of the world, and it's Jesus. There's only one Redeemer, and it's Jesus. There's only one who can do something about our sins, and that's Jesus. And we can never lose sight of that. That's the foundation of our faith. That's the foundation of everything about the relationship that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have with us. And by the way, when the Son comes and, and gives Himself and experiences the pain of the cross in all of its forms, the Father's not sitting back saying, I'm glad you're doing all the dirty work. Jesus says in John 17, the Father and I are one. And every pain that Jesus feels, the Father feels. And the Spirit feels. And every bit of the agony of the garden that Jesus experiences, so does the Father and the Son, because they are one. But the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth. In the second letter he writes to them, he says, All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. So we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Here's the, the, the amazing thing about this, is that while there's only one Redeemer... For those who have experienced the redemption of Christ in their lives, we now become agents in the world of that redemption. We become ambassadors, channels, through which people in the world can experience that redemption. And that means that you and I are going to, to go through similar experiences to what Jesus does in the garden and the cross. Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you have to take up your cross and follow me. 
If the way of the cross is the way of life through Jesus, then the way of the cross is going to be the way of life as we are his ambassadors and agents to lead people to Jesus. That's that's going to be a lifelong struggle for all of us because I don't want that to be the way. I want to influence the world by, by not having to face hard things. I want to influence the world by doing whatever I want to do. I want to influence the world by my will, not the Father's. And I suspect you wrestle with that too. But Jesus understands in greater depths than you and I understand, could ever understand, that submitting to the will of the Father, uniting our will with the Father, is uniting our will with what is good and pleasing and perfect. Because while it leads to a cross, it also leads to an empty tomb. And eventually, to the restoration of all of God's creation. And so Paul writes to the church at Rome, now if we are children, we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. And so Paul says to the church in Philippi, have this mind in you that was in Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God. What's interesting is that 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 hymn that we often come back to that describes Jesus emptying himself is not really the point of the passage. It's the illustration in the passage. The point of the passage is, have this mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. And he says, this is the mind of Christ Jesus. But before he even says, have this mind, he says, here's what it looks like. He's saying, his whole point is, You need to treat each other better. You need to get along with each other. You need to care for each other. And in verse 4, he says, Don't look out only for your own interests, but think about the interests of others as well. You can't just live your life thinking about yourself. You've got to think about other people too. But here's what's fascinating. As I've been reading about that particular, this verse, and and looking at how scholars interpret it, what they think about it, It's interesting that the majority of scholars are coming to understand that the word only is not really in the passage. It's not really in the Greek text. And so really what is a better translation is what the New International Version has, which is don't look out for your own interests. But look out for the interests of others. It's not as if we can say, all right, look, I'll think about myself, and if I have time, I'll think about other people. What Paul is saying is, stop putting yourself first. Stop putting yourself second. Start thinking about other people before yourself. And the interesting thing is, in that particular case, if everyone is thinking more about the other person, then everyone gets what they need. And that's the nature of the kingdom. That's what happens when we unite our will with the fathers. As we see Jesus doing. I mentioned last week about how 
God tells a story of Abraham and Isaac and how God tells Isaac, uh, God tells Abraham to, to take Isaac up on Mount Moriah, that mountain that most people would see as the, as the old city of Jerusalem and, and even the modern city of that and probably where the events of Calvary took place. And how he gets up on the mountain and he's about to plunge the knife into Isaac and the Lord stops him. And he sees a ram in a thicket and he says, that's what you sacrifice. And the imagined conversation that Dennis Kinlaw has about the, the, the Trinity and the second person of the Trinity thinking about that encounter and how the, the second person of the Trinity says, Father, this is not the last time we're going to be here, is it? And the Father says, no, son, we're coming back here in about 1900 years. He says, when we come back, it's not going to be one of the creatures, one of our creatures who's up for sacrifice, is it? And the father says, no, son, it's not going to be one of our creatures. It's going to be you. And the son says, father, when they lay me out on the cross, and they're about ready to bring down the hammer on the spikes, are you going to stop them? Like you did Abraham? And the father says, son, no. I'm not going to stop them. And after one of the services last week, someone said to me, I wonder if there wasn't one more question. It's not just the son asking the father, are you going to stop them? But it's also the father asking the son, are you going to stop them? And I suspect all along this journey, there is the temptation of Jesus, you can stop them. Doesn't have to go to a cross. And I think every one of us are faced with that same temptation. I was reading something this week in a book a guy told about um, a young Greek man who spent a summer visiting monasteries all over Greece. He tells about a conversation he had with an elderly monk in one of those monasteries. And in the course of the conversation, he somehow he asked the, came up, he asked the monk, so do you still wrestle with the devil? And the monk looked at this young man and he said, you know, no, I don't wrestle with the devil anymore. He said, really, you don't? He said, no. He said, now I got into the place where he said, I wrestle with God. And the young man looked at him surprised. He said, really? You wrestle with God? He said, yeah. He said, I wrestle with God. And the young man said to this elderly monk, so do you hope to win? And the monk said to him, oh, no, my child. I don't hope to win. I hope to lose. Because when we lose in our struggle with God, that's when we win. To unite our will with the Father is to unite ourselves with His good, pleasing, and perfect will. And to find not only do we begin to experience his shalom, we become agents of that shalom. 
And yes, it's taking up a cross and it's having the mind of Christ. But it's a pathway to greater things than any of us could ever dream or imagine. I'd like for us to spend some time in in prayer. You may have noticed that we shifted the prayer here to the end of the service. And we're going to spend just a few moments in silence. Maybe it's a time for you to confess some things to God. Maybe it's a time to, to just be honest with God, to wrestle with God. Whatever it is that you want to say. And then we will have the opportunity to be agents of redemption and reconciliation for others as we pray for them. I wonder if this might be a, a time when it might, ex- maybe it express your heart today to, to kneel as you pray. And maybe you just want to kneel right where you are, right there in your seat. You can come up here to the altar if you want, but if you want to just kneel where you are, if you can, if you're able, or if you want to. If you don't, that's perfectly fine. But it may be one of those moments of, of surrender. That maybe kneeling is the posture that might best describe how you want to offer your prayers. Holy Father, thank you that we can come to you in honesty and openness, in vulnerability, and find grace, open arms, redemption, and healing. We thank you for the privilege not only of what you want to do in us, but what you want to do through us as we willingly take up our cross and follow you. We pray, Father, for our world of great pain and heartache, for refugees, people in places of war, and for the leaders of our government. We ask that you will bring your spirit to bear. We pray for those going through tragedies and disasters and Our minds and our hearts are broken for the people of Mozambique and the people all throughout that area have been hit by this recent cyclone. Buildings, homes, churches leveled, people with no place to go, deaths and suffering. 
It's almost beyond our ability to comprehend. We pray that you will help those who are bringing food and providing shelter and safe places in your church, your people, to be a source of hope and light and comfort. Father, we pray for our own needs. We think of all who are grieving today, particularly the families of Florence Tuber, Paul Johnson, John Decepian, Ann Knowlton, Barb Ben Wicklin, at her father's death. We ask, Father, for your Holy Spirit to be so clearly that we're giving them comfort. We pray for all who are struggling with health concerns and the pain of life. We pray for all who are wrestling in relationships and worry about the future and finances and Lord, all of the things that are part of our lives, we want to give them to you knowing that you are good and merciful and gracious and laying them at your feet, trusting you with them is the greatest thing we could do. Father, we thank you for hearing our prayers. Give us the courage. Give us the strength and the grace to continue Unite our will with yours. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.